Reynold Showers has written a very helpful little book, uh, What on Earth is God Doing? And Dr. Showers in this book traces the beginning, middle, and end of the conflict between Satan and God in human history. I commend it to your reading. The quote I'd like to share from you from Dr. Shower's book is this. The kingdom of Satan had attacked the kingdom of God with the goal of destroying it. If God were to remain sovereign, he must crush Satan and his kingdom. Thus, the stage was set for a fantastic conflict, the conflict of the ages. This conflict would be waged both in the heavens and on the earth. The ultimate purpose for this history is for God to glorify himself by demonstrating his sovereignty. End of quote. You know, not very often do we think about Satan as we celebrate Christmas. Christmas to us, rightly so, is a baby, shepherds, wise men and angels. Christmas is God's love. And, of course, Christmas is all of that and more. But Christmas also is Satan's nightmare. Christmas is Satan's nightmare. Satan, of course, was not pleased with Christmas. Christmas brought Satan's opponent from heaven to earth, and Christmas thereby threatened Satan's turf. Christmas was the beginning of the end for Satan. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, the record tells us, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This conflict, this battle between Satan and God at Christmas was precisely why Satan moved a jealous and a crazed King Herod to kill all the male babies and toddlers in his kingdom when he was tricked by the devout magi who did not divulge to Herod the baby king's whereabouts. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, which is our major text this morning, we read the following. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. I see three important truths in the verses I have just read to you. The first truth, humanity is necessary for physical death. The second truth, Satan currently, currently holds the power of death. And third, unredeemed mankind is slave to the fear of death. 
Humanity is necessary for physical death. Satan currently holds the power of death. The unredeemed mankind is slave to the fear of death. Let's take these three one at a time. In the first place, humanity is necessary for physical death. The first part of verse 14 alludes to this when it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. It's interesting that the writer of the Hebrews letter says that he sums up what it means to be human in the sharing of flesh and blood. And what's even more interesting than that is the fact that the Greek word order here is not flesh and blood. We so often say flesh and blood. The Greek order here is blood and flesh, not flesh and blood. The Spirit of God says that the word order here is blood and then flesh. Blood, Greek here, hematos, means the life blood. Satan, of course, does not have any blood. He's a spirit angel. And demons don't have any blood either. They are fallen angels and not humans. And they can't be redeemed. And they can't die. Sarkos, the Greek word for flesh, means material flesh. We might say meat. Satan doesn't have flesh. He is a spirit. Demons also don't have flesh. They are fallen angels and not human beings. They can't be redeemed, even if they wish that they could be. They can't even die. So why does the Greek of verse 14 list blood before flesh? Because blood ever has been and ever will be key to God. Blood is key to God. The life is in the blood. When we go to a doctor for a physical, that doctor often will order a blood panel, a testing of our blood for many different things. And they can find out so many different things about us by our blood because the life is in the blood. And of course, blood, according to God's plan and requirement, had to be shed. In the Old Testament, in the law, there were prescribed animal sacrifices of blood. And those blood sacrifices of animals were temporary coverings for sin that anticipated the once-for-all-time covering for sin, the precious, unique blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was called the Lamb for sinners slain. Blood is the key to God. And Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, say this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so God, who is spirit, the Son of God, became human. 
He took on flesh like us. He took on blood. He could die in his body, human body, and he could shed his innocent blood from his veins and arteries as he was crucified. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The Christmas hymn writers knew well what we are looking at together in these minutes. Why lies he in such mean estate? where ox and ass are feeding. Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Or, hail, the heaven-born prince of peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Yes, humanity was and is necessary for physical death. And Christ's physical death was absolutely necessary for our redemption, the purchase of us out of the slave marketplace of sin to set us free to be able to do the will of God for the glory of God. And so I simply ask, are you redeemed? Are you redeemed? The second point this morning is Satan currently holds the power of death. Currently, as we sit or stand together in this moment, Satan holds the power of death. In Hebrews 2, 14, again, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil, also known as Satan, currently uses physical death as his trump card, his checkmate move. And since there are no second chances for eternal salvation after one's death, Therefore, death for the unbeliever is Satan's real power. The unbeliever who physically dies remains eternally under God's righteous judgment and under Satan's designs in hell. Hell is not a big party with all of your friends. Hell is hell. 
Of course, that Satan would temporarily hold the power of death started way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve's disobedience ushered in sin and death where there had been neither, where their disobedience and sin caused death to emerge on the human landscape. Death is separation. There are three varieties of death. There is physical death when the soul and the spirit separate from the body. There's spiritual death when the spirit in an otherwise alive body and soul, when the spirit is separated from God by sin. And there is eternal death when the resurrected body, soul, and spirit as a unity are separated from God in a place of confinement called hell. And all of those forms of death and separation came on the scene when our federal head, Adam, and his spouse, Eve, ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the great thing, the hopeful thing, is that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will permanently take Satan out of the way. And the Lord Jesus Christ one day will also permanently take physical death out of the way. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And then Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We can read the end of the book of all books, and we can find that the Lord Jesus Christ wins. And because we are in him by saving faith, because we have thrown ourselves upon his person, finished work on the cross of Calvary, we win with him. That's very wonderful and very true. But in the meanwhile, currently, until the victory is consummated, Satan is currently wreaking havoc on Nassau and the Bahamas and Europe and Africa and North America and Australia and Asia, currently Satan is wreaking havoc around the world. Satan is deceiving. He's accusing. He's deflecting from Christ. He's lying. He's hiding the truth. He's blocking prayer. He's alluring to evil. He's killing, murdering those who aren't ready to meet God. 
Satan knows that he himself cannot avoid hell. Satan knows the Bible. He knows he can't avoid the lake of fire. So he settles and contents himself to populate hell with as many unbelievers in Christ as he possibly can. It's the expression that misery loves company being played out at an everlasting scale. Let me ask you, what is physical death for you? A terror or a promotion? Satan's trump card or Christ's victory? A phobia or a homegoing? What is death to you and me? That has everything to do with what we've done or not done with Jesus Christ. I would submit to us, church family, that sorting out the implications of one's death is a large part of living the examined life. Sorting out the implications of your death is a large part of you living the examined life. And an unexamined life is not worth living. Some people face death with a lot of artificial and hollow bravado. Somerset Mom did. I quote from Kent Hughes's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this world... Fear of death is a real thing, though some, such as the 90-year-old novelist Somerset Mom, have officially denied it. In the last chapter of his memoirs, A Traveler in Romance, Mom wrote, and I quote, There are moments when I have so palpitating an eagerness for death that I could fly to it as to the arms of a lover. I am drunk with the thought of it. It seems to me to offer me the final and absolute freedom. There are indeed days when I feel that I have done everything too often, known too many people, read too many books, seen too many pictures, statues, churches, and fine houses, and listened to too much music. I neither believe in immortality nor desire it. I should like to die quietly and painlessly, and I am content to be assured that with my last breath, my soul, with its aspirations and its weaknesses, will dissolve into nothingness. End of quote. That's all an atheist can hope for. I go with Kent Hughes now. That was mom's official self-conscious bravado But how did Somerset Maugham really die? In 1965, Maugham's 91st year, he was visited by his nephew, Robin Maugham, who wrote of it in the April 9th, 1978 London Times. According to his nephew, the visit took place at his famous uncle's Mediterranean villa shortly before he died. After his arrival, Robin spent the day viewing, among other things, the drawing room, and the immensely valuable pictures and objects his uncle's success had enabled him to acquire, Somerset Maugham had 
11 servants, including his cook, Annat, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates and was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. But none of that any longer meant anything to him. His nephew wrote, and I quote the nephew, the following afternoon I found Willie reclining on a sofa peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung himself down on the sofa. Oh, Robin, I'm so tired. And he gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. And Willie looked up and his grip tightened on my hands and he was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear and he was trembling violently. Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek, go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. His high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked round, but the room was empty as before. That brings us to the third and final point of this Christmas message this morning. It is this, the unredeemed of mankind are slave to the fear of death. Slave to the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 15. And might free those through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Heaven, as you know, church, is a prepared place. Christ is preparing heaven. And think of all the beauties and splendors of creation on earth that took six literal days for God to speak into existence and think that for over 2,000 years, the Lord Jesus had been preparing heaven with splendors. What splendors? But heaven is a prepared place only for prepared people. And prepared people are not prepared by their good deeds, but prepared people are prepared by seeing their wickedness, their sinfulness, their transgressions, and running in childlike faith to a Savior on a cross who had no sin and yet became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Is that you? The unspiritually unprepared dread their deaths, and they should. The spiritually unprepared fear death, and they should. This dread that the unprepared have of their deaths is often a terror, an 
a slow-burning backburner terror they don't talk about, they don't want to admit or look at until they're facing death in the face. And then that terror that has been holding them hostage in slavery to fear is manifest for all to see. Why is the fear of death so pervasive? Why is the fear of dying so widespread? Because it's the fear of pain. And it's the fear of separation from all that we know and from the ones that we love. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of non-being. Atheist Bertrand Russell's words, brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark, end of quote. That's all that an atheist can hope for. That's the best case scenario for an atheist that they stop existing. But God has told us in his word that we don't stop existing because being made in his image in part includes living forever in either heaven or hell. Why is the fear of death so widespread? Because it's the fear of everlasting conscious punishment. If you're here this morning without a confident salvation in Christ, Transfer your trust to him. No one can do that for you. Your wife, your husband can't do that for you. Your children can't do that for you. Your coworkers can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. Your neighbor can't do that for you. Your pastor can't do that for you. And it's not until you transfer your trust to Christ that it's been transferred. We meet people every day every day, who live quiet lives of desperation. They are anxious. They are fearful. And the granddaddy fear of them all is death. And so they Trojan through life, real Spartans, stiff upper lip, But when they lay their head on the pillow, they know they have done wrong in God's sight. And they try to atone for it instead of letting Jesus atone. Christmas was Satan's worst nightmare. Christmas was the beginning of the fear of death going away for the believer. And Christmas is what makes our freedom, freedom from sin possible, freedom from hell possible, freedom from ourselves possible, freedom to do God's will. Jesus said as much in John 8, 31 and 32, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
There are persons, perhaps, in your families, persons with whom you work, perhaps persons with whom you worship in this sanctuary who are shackled by invisible chains around their wrists and their ankles because they have not yet been set free by the Lord Jesus, the babe of Bethlehem, the Savior of the cross and empty tomb. And so, in closing, I need to ask each of you, are you free December 17th, 2017? Are you free from the fear of death? Are you free from the penalty of your sins? Are you free from the power of sin? Are you free from guilt and condemnation? Are you free from pessimism and cynicism? Are you free from discontentment and greed? Are you free from self-centeredness? Are you free from anxieties? Are you free from addictions? Are you free from this Christless world's seductions? You can be free. This morning, you can be free. You would admit to God that you're a sinner. And you would tell God that you believe you can't make it to heaven on your own effort or merit. And you would tell God in belief that you know Jesus Christ died the death that you deserve to die to give you the life you could never earn for yourself. And you would put all of your trust, all of your faith, onto Jesus Christ alone. Because the fact is that salvation is not a reward for the righteous. Salvation is a gift for the ungodly. Have you received the gift? For those of us who are saved, we can live in victory as we understand what it means to live the Holy Spirit-filled and controlled life. The Spirit of God would so permeate us to control our minds, our mouths, our hands, our feet, our hearts, that we would walk in ways that would display the fruit of the Spirit, which are the character attributes of Jesus. We would understand that we've been co-crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Those who would walk as believers with victory and freedom would understand that the first command of all the epistle to the Romans was chapter 6, verse 11, which says, even so, consider yourselves, consider yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's freedom. Donald Gray Barnhouse spoke of a couple who came to salvation in Jesus Christ later in life. 
And after their conversion, they were invited to a Christmas party that was like the other Christmas parties with those particular friends every Christmas previous to the Christmas after their conversions. Drinking, off-color jokes, flirtation, and worse. And they were invited to this Christmas party after being saved. And they responded to the RSVP with, Burnett and I cannot attend this year's Christmas party. Both of us died on October 17th. Both of us died. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, you've died. The old you has died. And Christ, through his Holy Spirit, is wanting to live his life through you. That's freedom. There was a family that was riding down the highway, and there was a billboard. And the billboard said, let's make this the best Christmas ever. The car went past the sign some miles, and a little voice in the back seat of the son of the family said, Dad, how do you improve on the first Christmas? You can't. You can't. Now, I'd like in closing for you to let the scripture of Revelation 1, 17 and 18 wash over you and encourage you. When I saw him, that is the resurrected Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Then, by also by way of our encouragement, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, listen. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That... That will bring you a Merry Christmas. In closing, I've said that about three times now, but we're really going to land the plane this time. Two bottom lines. The first is that Christmas is the doing in of Satan and the fear of death. Christmas is the doing in of Satan and the fear of death. And Christmas is also freedom. I hope you can remember that when we look theologically past all the miracles of Christmas and the wonders of Christmas, that underneath it all was a theology that God the Father rendered a death blow to Satan and brought the Messiah, the God-provided solution for sin and for estrangement from God, right to earth in a human baby who had blood and flesh, who was the welding together of humanity and deity, 
who could and did die for us rebels so that we can be made children of God. Merry Christmas. Heavenly Father, we stand as great debtors of the cross. All of eternity, we couldn't pay back the love gift you've given us in Christ, the grace you've lavished upon us in his sacrifice. Lord, we desire to live a thank you kind of life to you the remainder of each of our individual lifespans here on earth. We would pray, Lord, that we could share the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ with as many persons as is possible. If Satan is trying to populate hell, may we cooperate with you, Father, in the population of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.